0: you would please as you remain standing take your bibles and turn them to psalm 14 the text can also be found on page five in the bulletin we'll be reading psalm 14 as we continue on our series old songs for a new year psalm 14 to the choir master of david the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt they do abominable deeds there is none who does good The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go and seek the Lord as we come to his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. For this psalm, God, which calls us to to think on, to dwell on even the depravity of, of man, ourselves very much included, because in doing that, we see your salvation. We see your goodness to even fools like us. So God, would you, by your spirit, help us to contemplate and to consider like David, even our own depravity, but even more so your great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In one of his later novels, Robert Louis Stevenson, of Treasure Island fame, wrote the following, A great part of life consists in contemplating what we cannot cure. If this sounds a bit pessimistic, it is. I will spare you the details, but the novel is The Master of Ballantrae, and it is essentially a book about the relational and moral ruin of two brothers. The older brother, the master, is a scoundrel from the beginning. He presents himself as a man of virtue and of class, but it is all a facade. He is not the angel that everyone thinks or believes he is. The younger starts off as an honest man, but he slowly descends into his own corruption as he confronts daily the wickedness of his older brother. The two brothers essentially destroy one another by by the end of the novel and the statement is actually made by the narrator who is also the caretaker of the estate that the brothers own and he, he utters it as he watches the younger brother helplessly decrease in both his mental and his moral condition he realizes that he cannot cure the younger brother of his growing hatred for the older brother just as the younger brother cannot cure the corruption of his elder brother each is an impossible task, and so when when the caretaker utters this statement, it, it's a depressing statement. In Psalm 14, we see that David is also contemplating what he cannot cure, the fool and his folly. And one might be tempted to think along the lines of the narrator, or Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson, and think, David, stop wasting your time and energy. It's not going to get you anywhere. Or, David, this is only going to lead, the more you think about this, the, the more it's going to end in your own frustration, maybe even your own depression, or worse. But thankfully, we see here, even in places like Psalm 14, that prayerful contemplation is not a fruitless exercise. It is not a waste of our time. Now, don't get me wrong, the picture that we see David paint here in Psalm 14 is ugly and depressing. Evil and corruption are very real in both David's world and the world that we live in today. However, contemplating it, considering it, we see that David not only sees the depth of it, but he also grasps the reality of the Lord, mostly his presence and his salvation. David cannot escape the reality that God is near and that he has come to save. So Psalm 14, this this psalm of contemplation, helps David and us to see that the depravity of man runs deep, but the salvation of the Lord runs deeper. And no, we're not going to find out that David walks away with some magical cure or a pill that he can give to man freely. The world around him is going to remain scarred by sin and corruption. Scoundrels are everywhere. But David does, however, walk away with a renewed confidence and hope. He may not have the cure, but he is reminded of the one who does, and the one who has promised to save. Our outline for you is in the bulletin, and we're going to follow David's contemplations in this psalm. First, David starts by considering the fool, and then he considers the Lord, and then it ultimately ends with considering salvation. And as we work through these considerations of David, may we, like David, see and even rejoice in the great salvation of the Lord, even in this world of sin and corruption. We see David starts, though, by considering the fool. As David opens this prayer, his mind initially dwells and fixates on the wicked. And again, like many of the Psalms, we don't have an immediate context for why David, in this moment, goes to the fool. Maybe he's surrounded by fools. Or maybe he's even battling against them. Maybe fools in Israel or in the nations surrounding Israel. Maybe he's actively oppressed. Could be by Saul or by another enemy. Or maybe there's nothing unique that David is facing aside from the daily battle against sin. Wickedness is often an everyday contemplation. It's unavoidable. The workplace, the news, trips to the grocery store, parenting. These all force us to consider, to grapple with, and even battle against sin and corruption. Now, the word fool here that David uses is is not maybe what we think of as we consider the word fool. This is not someone who's ignorant or stupid, even. The fool is often intelligent, they know what they're doing. Both here and in wisdom literature, the fool is is not someone lacking intelligence, but it's an individual without moral or religious sensibility. He needs more than just wisdom. And David is going to emphasize that, that, and he's going to prove that what he lacks is morality. He is corrupt all the way through. And right away he declares that the fool is arrogant. Listen to what he says at the very beginning. The fool says in his heart... There is no God. Then if you jump down to verse 4, he says, The fool does not call upon the Lord. At his very core, the center of who he is, where all things moral and ethical flow, the fool finds only himself. He arrogantly assumes that he is the master of his ship. There's no one above him. There's no one he must answer to. And again, this doesn't surprise us, or at least it shouldn't surprise us. Sin and depravity begin with the prideful rejection of God as our creator. Simply need to look at at Paul's argument in Romans 1. Pride and arrogance are not simply character flaws or a hiccup here or a mistake there. They reveal the depravity and the wickedness of the human heart. It is a heart that sees no need for God and even denies his very existence. And then from this posture of arrogance, corruption then is only natural. See where David goes. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. And then further on down, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. The fool is not simply one who does bad things, he is corrupt to his core. He does precisely what God in in his word has said should not be done, must not be done. There is nothing good that dwells within him. Jesus would tell his disciples in Luke chapter 6 verses 44 and 45, each tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. With such an arrogant, God-denying heart, the fool can only produce the treasure of depravity and evil. It can't help but leak out of him. For those of you who know me, I played water polo and I swam all throughout high school. I literally lived in the pool. The Peary family can relate to this. At least five days a week for close to four straight years, I stewed in chlorine. Chlorine. And to my surprise, or maybe not to my surprise, it slowly started to leak out of me, especially once I was in college and I stopped spending so much time in the pool. How did I realize that it was leaking out of me? Well, whenever I would sweat, I would reek literally of chlorine. It was a rather weird and totally undesirable experience for everyone, especially if I was playing basketball with uh, ten other pe- nine other people playing with me. That years of soaking in chlorine bore a fruit of chlorine sweat. This is the fool. He is soaking in his God-denying arrogance. And out of that arrogance, out of that soaking, produces only corruption. It oozes out of him, leaks out of every pore. And it reeks of everywhere he goes and it is in everything that he does. And this then makes the fool oppressive, and we see that as David considers him. He says, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, you would shame the plans of the poor. It would be bad enough if the fool would only hurt and destroy himself. But sadly, his depravity infects everything. Like my chlorine-sweating self, everyone gets hit with his cloud." That language of eat up is the language of oppression. It also means to devour. Micah would use that same word as he rebuked Israel's leaders in Micah chapter 3. Where he essentially said, you care about nothing. You don't care about God. You don't care about his law. You don't care about his people. You only care about yourself and you only care about your selfish gain. You devour. And this is exactly how the fool operates. He lives for himself. He lives for his own nourishment, his own success. He cares nothing for the weak, for the poor, or for those who may be suffering. And in fact, he actually seeks to take advantage of their suffering. He sees their loss as his gain, and he has the power, the influence, and the ability to bring it about. And again, we all know such people exist. Some of us only know them secondhand, thankfully. They're the the political leaders or the CEOs or others in high positions that we read about in the news. But some of us also have experienced them firsthand, very painfully so. They may be our bosses, our family members, friends, and sometimes even leaders in the church. With their corruption, they oppress, they bring real devastation, and we're left to rightly lament their presence. And their prevalence. But before David leaves, considering the fool, he throws in a little note there where he considers how the fool is actually fearful. Look at verse 5, where he says, They, there, are in great terror. He acknowledges the fool is afraid. And while there is debate about it, is this a present fear, is this a future fear, The truth is they are afraid, and deeply so, because the fool has no security. He has no peace. He is an internal disaster waiting to be completely undone by his own folly. The more he acts out his corruption, his depravity, the greater his fear increases. Matthew Henry writes about the fool's fear. Their own consciences condemned what they did and filled them with secret terrors. And then later he says, Those that will not fear God perhaps may be made to fear at the shaking of a leaf. Corruption doesn't hide their fear, it's only a mask to cover it up. And again, as we come to the end of David's considering the fool, we are painfully aware that we live in a world filled with fools and their depravity. Sin is the great disease. And sin is exceedingly sinful. I can remember, I think it was a year ago, where where Tim preached on the sinfulness of sin. Everywhere we turn, we see it. Everywhere we go, we experience it. And it's depressing. And it hurts. And we rightfully long for it to end. But we can't simply stop there. There. And see the corruption and the folly and the depravity outside. While we ignore where it is inside. We have to take to heart what was read for us earlier from Romans chapter 3. Where Paul does quote Psalm 14. For the reality is the fool is you and me. We stand in solidarity with the fool. As one of the prayers from the Valley of Vision writes, a fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. We must always remember, before we're quick to point out the fool out there, who we are apart from Christ. Not for the purpose of shaming or guilting ourselves or beating ourselves over the head with how terrible we are, but to humble ourselves. To remind us that we need Christ just as much as the fool needs Christ. That we need to lament the folly that remains inside of us as much as we lament the folly that we see outside of us. We should confess it, repent of it, seek to mortify it daily, even as we rightly cry out for it to end. Considering the fool means that we consider how we need the Holy Spirit to keep us, not walking according to the flesh, according to the, fo- the foolish ways that are a part of our nature, but walking instead by the Spirit. It means first seeing the fool in the mirror, even as we see the fool outside our window. So, considering the fool, David then goes and he considers the Lord. It's, it's the natural move that he makes. And this is where we see that, that prayerful contemplation is far more hopeful than that quote of Robert Louis Stevenson. For as David considers the fool, even himself likely included, he cannot hit help but consider the one who stands over the fool observing, keeping watch over all his corruption and his depravity. And this is the first thing that David considers as he considers the Lord. He is the judge. Listen to what he says in verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. From his heavenly vantage point, the Lord sees all that is happening on earth. And has already been pointed out as we've looked through these three, four Psalms to this point nothing, nothing escapes his sight. The Lord is not some kind of detective who's putting the pieces of the puzzle together, hope, hoping to reach the logical conclusion. No, he's the judge who's building the case for divine judgment. He's confirming that judgment is the only appropriate response. To all the wickedness, all the evil and the corruption that the fool has brought. We heard something similar a few weeks ago in Psalm chapter 11 verse 4. Where David, when he's being told to seek refuge elsewhere, looks to heaven and he says, The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. But even closer still, this scene is supposed to draw us back to Genesis chapter 6, actually. Primarily verses 11 through 12, where we hear, Now the earth was corrupt, same word in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence, same words we see here. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Psalm 14 hints at Genesis chapter 6. The situations are similar. Corruption is rampant. Depravity everywhere. And the solution is God's judgment. And in fact, the Lord takes David's analysis analysis one step further. David says, I look out and I see there's no one who does, does good. And the Lord says, you're right, there is no one who does good. Not even one. He puts the stamp on, 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 on the verdict. There's none who does righteousness. There's none who does good. And so when we remember that the Lord is judge, we come to the realization that he knows. He's not turning a blind eye to the depravity of those who bear his image. He will bring judgment. And for those who rest in Christ, he already has brought judgment. The judgment that we deserve. He poured it out on Christ, and for that we are eternally thankful and humble. But for the fool, he will one day know that there is indeed a God, and that this God is one before whom all, as First Peter says, must give an account, because he's the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. But as David considers the Lord as judge, he also shifts there and notices how the Lord is near to his people. We see this in verse 5 as well. Whereas the fool lives in great fear, he's in terror. The people of God have peace. They have stability. For he says God is with the generation of the righteous. Even in the face of the fool's wickedness and evil, The people of God rest knowing they're not abandoned, they're not left alone. God is with them, he's in their midst. We read the nearness of the Lord in in times of trouble throughout the Psalter. It's a theme throughout the Psalter. Psalm 34, 18 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 145, 18 says the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. God is with his people in the midst of all the troubles that they face. It was and it is his promise to them. We are reminded of this every time we gather here on Sunday morning, week in and week out. As we sing, as we hear his word preached, as we pray, as we observe the sacraments, we are tangibly reminded that God is in our midst. He is here with us. He is strengthening us for that fight against the wickedness and the depravity, first in our own hearts and then outside of us. And he hears us as we plead for him to bring it to an end. Compared to the fool, the righteous have nothing to fear. Because God, the judge of all, is with us. And he has promised never to leave or to forsake his people. And this idea of the Lord's nearness then guarantees also that the Lord is a refuge for his people. He's there to protect his afflicted. He says this in verse six but the Lord is his refuge. Again, we've heard David declare this already in Psalm eleven, verse one. And it's been hinted at in all the other Psalms we've we've looked at so far in this series. The Lord is the shelter of his people. He is that strong tower. He is that picture of a mother bird hiding its chicks under her wings for protection. They seek shelter under the shadow of her wings. And no, this doesn't negate the consequences and the effects of the fool's corruption. It doesn't keep sin from actually hurting and doing damage. We know that the hearts of the fool are still bent on shaming the plans of the poor and the afflicted. He seeks to destroy the lowly. He seeks to ridicule the righteous who seek the Lord. But the righteous continue to seek and to find shelter and peace in the God who is their refuge. They keep coming back to him. They keep turning and running to him for safety. They continue doing what the fool refuses to do, call upon the name of the Lord. Because the righteous knows without a shadow of a doubt, the Lord is his refuge. Again, we need not look hard to see how the Lord continues to be a refuge for his people. Mainly his people who are poor and afflicted. Around the world, our brothers and sisters are facing incredible suffering. The group, Open Doors, just released their yearly World Watch list, which is a report that they do every year on the 50 countries that they deem it's, I'm quoting here, the most difficult to follow Jesus. And I would encourage you to to seek that out. If you go to, I think it's opendoorsusa.org, to read it and to commit to pray for our brothers and sisters in these places, because they're dealing with corruption and evil that I pray by God's grace we never have to face. Families are spying on each other and ratting each other out. Christians are executed publicly in celebration. Children are taken from homes to coerce parents into giving in. Christians are physically, emotionally, financially oppressed day after day. And while many are wisely seeking to flee for their lives, and the lives of their families, they are still clinging to the Lord as their refuge. The reports coming out of these places, while devastating, are also confessions of the Lord being the refuge of his people. And they're still meeting together to worship. They're still praying together. They're still resting and trusting. Why? Because the Lord is their refuge. Which begs the question for us today, where are we looking? Where am I looking for refuge? As many Christians in this country rightly decry the ongoing decay and corruption that we see, I do fear that too many times we are looking in all the wrong places for refuge. Our political leaders, our civil leaders, even the Supreme Court's, And no, I am not in any way saying it is wrong to hold our elected leaders accountable for those they represent. And no, I am not saying it is wrong for us to pray that righteous laws would be made in this country. But we need to remember, elected leaders, righteous laws are not our refuge. The Lord alone is our refuge. All other refuges will ultimately fail. They can only fail. They cannot judge truly and rightly. Their nearness may comfort us for a day, but that's it. The refuge that they provide is fleeting. It will be gone tomorrow. But instead, may we, like David, as we consider the Lord, find our refuge in him and in him alone. May we learn to trust in him, especially as we face the daily onslaught of sin and wickedness within and without. And unlike the fool, let us seek him and cry out to him privately on our own and also when we gather together in the company of the righteous who have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. May we live not like the fool who doesn't know God, but as the humble who are known by God and cling to him at all times. David then moves, after he considers the fool and after he considers the Lord, he concludes then in verse 7 by considering salvation. And in a way, the, way, the manner in which David ends this psalm kind of turns the whole thing almost into this, this kind of lament. And some commentators actually take Psalm 14 as a lament. Compared to last week, which was a more an individual one, they treat this one as, as a collective lament of the righteous. Now the truth is that nothing would change if we put Psalm 14 in the category of lament or if we leave it out. The categories of Psalms are not rigid, they blend together, elements of one are seen in another. But in, in many ways Psalm 14 does kind of have that lament feel to it. It does sound like the community of God expressing their grief over the sin and the corruption that's facing them. They may not explicitly cry out how long as David did in Psalm 13, but it almost feels natural to kind of throw it in there. How long must mankind bear under the weight of its own depravity? How long must the fruit and consequences of depravity be endured? How long must the righteous keep waiting for and trusting in its end? So whether Psalm 14 is a formal lament or not, it does end as most laments do. As we saw last week, Psalm 13 ends with a word of hopeful expectation. David doesn't end in depression. He doesn't end in despair. He ends in hope. He moves to the salvation of the Lord that is promised to him and to all God's people. And this builds within him anticipation and longing for it. He knows that with full confidence it's coming. He's not wishing on a star or crossing his fingers. As he considers the Lord's salvation, it provides him with certain hope. And how does it do? How does it provide this hope? First, salvation is of the Lord. It's an obvious statement. But listen to what he says. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. David cries out for what only the Lord can bring. Deliverance from the fool, from his corruption, from his oppression, from his wickedness. Such deliverance can't come from any human campaign or any human movement. It can only come from the Lord out of Zion. The Psalms sing most heavily in all of Scripture of Zion, specifically in the Old Testament. We opened our service this morning singing, Zion, city of our God. The last line we confess that Solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. Salvation being the chief and the the most desired of those joys and treasures. For Old Testament Israel, Zion was not this ideal concept or an idea. It wasn't something they created in their head to help them endure times of difficulty and suffering. It is the place where God's presence with his people was symbolized most forcibly, as one commentator writes. It represented where God dwelled, where his throne was, where the source of blessing flows, and much more. Zion's the place where the fool, his corruption, his depravity, and his wickedness are gone forever. Zion is the hope of the people of God, and it remains their hope until it comes in its fullness. And Zion and the Lord's salvation also means restoration. David says that salvation would come when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Like it, Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now some here take that this psalm is actually an exilic psalm. They think that while David is attributed to it, it was probably written while God's people were in Babylon. And such a reading would certainly make sense. Because as we read the Old Testament accounts of what God's people faced in exile, they certainly experienced the depravity and wickedness of man. Think of the idolatry in Daniel, fiery furnaces, lion's dens, immorality and more. And the list of nations that are provided who would oppress God's people, they were experts in depravity and wickedness. And so verse 7 kind of reveals this deep longing for the renewal that would come when they would finally get to go home. And that word fortunes can literally mean captivity. When they would be restored from captivity. Israel couldn't wait to sing and to dance in that place when exile would end. But even if it isn't an exilic psalm, which I would still argue, I think it's David's psalm, probably adopted for the exilic times. It still accurately captures that idea of longing for God's restoration, of longing for his salvation, of wanting it to be here, to be here now. Because David has painted a very good picture of what living amongst the fools looks like. It's oppressive and it's painful. And in light of that, who wouldn't long for restoration? Who is not desiring, yearning for the day when sin and evil and corruption are no more? Who is not pining for the blessings of God's salvation to be poured out on all his people for all of eternity? The truth is that Psalm 14 is the ongoing song of God's people as we live in exile. And if you're not convinced that we live in exile, go read 1 Peter. It's a letter to God's people where it repeatedly says you're living as exiles. This is not your home. There's a better home waiting for you. It's Zion. It's the place where salvation is. And Peter says that in exile, you can expect to endure suffering for righteousness' sake. And he tells us to persevere through it, no matter how vile and how corrupt it is. And he tells us that as you persevere, seek to be holy like the one who called you is holy. Because the one who called us, Jesus Christ, is the one who endured the depravity and the corruption of man to its fullest extent when he was nailed on that cross. And he did so that so that we might be healed of our own folly, of our own depravity. And in him we have the blessed hope of our full and final, complete salvation. It is because of Jesus Christ that we have the hope that, as Peter confesses in the end of his letter, that after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Brothers and sisters, do we find ourselves longing for our own restoration, even as we long for the restoration of everything around us? And does the reality that restoration, salvation is coming, lead us then to rejoice and to be glad, even as we struggle here and now. Because we have the confidence that the fool will not rule at the end. And neither will our remaining foolishness remain. Both will be gone forever, wiped away by God himself. This then can and should lead us to rejoice. It should lead us to be glad. Even as we battle against sin and corruption. Battle against the fool that remains within and the fool that is... Outside of us, because we know this battle is not in vain. We know that within Christ the fool has been crucified, he's been put to death, and there will be for those in Christ, there will be complete renewal. The end will be for all God's people, salvation and restoration. So let the church rejoice. Let the righteous in Christ be glad. The Lord and his salvation is coming. In a way, Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson was right. There is certainly much in life that we contemplate, that we put our mental energies toward, that we cannot cure. And maybe there are times where we'd probably be better off doing something different. However, David shows us, though, that prayerful contemplation is never a fruitless exercise. Even as we consider something as awful as the depravity of man, it can lead us, as we bring it to the throne of grace, it can lead us to a place filled with hope. Yes, it reminds us that the world in which we live is sinful. Corruption remains. And yes, it also humbles us because we have to admit that we bring our own corruptions with it. Our sin bears consequences. But it also can't help but lead us to consider the Lord and his salvation. He is the help of his people. He has made fools like you and like me into righteous in his sight by the power of his blood, which we just sang a few moments ago. And he is the judge who is waiting to rid this world of all depravity and all evil. And he promises to draw near to his people until that day comes. And he promises that his salvation is on its way. It is here for those in Christ. Those who were once fools but are now disciples. And it is at work in us presently by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that work will be completed one day when all things are restored, ourselves included. And this is our hope. The depravity of man runs deep, but thanks be to God that his salvation runs even deeper. Let us pray. Father God, we are humbled because we admit that we are, we once were the fool. God, we lived as those who declared there is no God. We were the corrupt. We were the ones doing abominable deeds, but by your grace, you have saved us. What can wash away our sin? What can make us no longer fools? We confess nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are humbled and we are thankful. We praise you, O Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit. That day by day you are making us less and less fools and more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. And as we consider the fool, as we see the corruption that is around us, God, we pray that it would come to an end. We pray and long for your salvation that is coming. But we pray until that day that you would keep us faithful. That you would keep us humble. That you would make us holy. And that we would find reasons to rejoice and to be glad. Because we are your people. You are near. You are our refuge. And may we trust in you today and until the day you either bring us home or, Jesus, you come in the clouds. Strengthen us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.